there for a minute. Children dismissed to junior church if they haven't left yet. Uh, there they go. Children dismissed to junior church. I'm going to grab my Bible as well. Hebrews chapter 12. As I set up the passage, just turn there. Who do you think would win a Sydney to Melbourne ultramarathon? Now, many of you may wonder, what is an ultramarathon? An ultramarathon is longer than 26.2 miles. A marathon is 26.2 miles. An ultramarathon is longer than 26.2 miles. 26.2 miles. So how about Cliff Young? In 1983, the 61-year-old potato farmer, get that, how old? 61-year-old potato farmer won the Westfield Sydney to Melbourne Ultramarathon, a distance of 875 kilometers, which is only 544 miles. Now, don't miss that he was only 61 years old when he won that ultramarathon. The, the race was run between what were then Australia's two largest Westfield shopping centers, Westfield Parramatta in Sydney and Westfield Doncaster in Melbourne. He ran at a slow loping pace and trailed the leaders for most of the first day. But by running while the others slept, he, he took the lead the first night and maintained it for the remainder of the race, eventually winning by 10 hours. Before running the race, he told the press that he had previously run for two or three days straight, rounding up sheep in gumboots which would be like our mud boots. Now, I've worn mud boots before, and I don't really want to run a race in mud boots, okay? But he had run for two to three days straight, rounding up sheep. He claimed afterwards that during the race, he imagined that he was running after sheep and trying to outrun a storm. <laughs> the Westfield run took him five days, 15 hours, and four minutes, almost two days faster than the previous record for any run between Sydney and Melbourne. Five days, 15 hours. Now remember, he's only 61 years old, okay? All six competitors who finished the race broke the previous record despite attempting the event again. Later in later years, Young was unable to repeat this performance or claim victory again. But imagine that still, 544-mile run. Wow. Generally, when we are running, it gets harder if we have more weight holding us down, doesn't it? In the early Olympics, I don't know if you know this, but in the early Olympics, they would train with weight, and then they would run naked. But they would train with weight so that when they actually ran the race, all that weight was taken off. Who there has seen someone run a marathon in a suit and tie? You, you don't do that. You, you run in the lightest clothing, in the best running shoes. You don't run in mud boots or gum boots or, or waders or anything like that. You don't do that. I, I once tried running with ankle weights, and I was in like the best shape of my life, and I thought, I'll try these ankle weights. So well, I did that for like a half mile. I'm like, no, these, I'm going to run back by my house, which I usually don't do because then I'll just stop, and I'll run back by my house, put those by the mailbox, and I'm going to keep going. No, you get rid of the weight when you run. You get rid of the weight. For about the last seven years, in many of my runs, I'll push Mercedes and Abigail, Megan got a, do a double jogging stroller when Mercedes was just a baby. She got one at a garage sale, and um, that jogging stroller has lasted us this long. And it was much, much, much easier 
when it was just Mercedes and she was like one year old. And then it got a little more difficult when I introduced Abigail to that and she was like six, year, six months old. Now at almost eight years old and five and a half years old, I think we've outlasted that. My point is that in running, we get rid of extra stuff. In any type of competition, you get rid of extra stuff. Today's passage in Hebrews chapter 12, in today's passage, it pictures the Christian life that way. It pictures the Christian life in a way as getting rid of the extra weight holding us back from serving the Lord. Get rid of the extra weight holding us back from serving the Lord. So my theme today is we can trust God just like the Old Testament saints trusted the Lord. We can trust God just like the Old Testament saints trusted the Lord. And here's an application for you. Eyes on Jesus. God is faithful. We can trust him. Eyes on Jesus. God is faithful. We can trust him. We're going to read Hebrews 12 here in just a moment. Um, not the whole chapter, just the first few verses. But as we read it, I'm introducing a new sermon series. We ended Celebrate Recovery's uh, 12-step sermon series, not 12-step, 8-principle sermon series last week. And today I want to start talking about people of the Bible, specifically people of the Old Testament, people of the Old Testament, forgotten lives of the Old Testament. And Hebrews 12 follows Hebrews 11. And Hebrews 11 is about all the heroes of the faith. All the Hebrew heroes of the faith. And as you get in Hebrews 12, the writer tells us, these heroes of the faith of Hebrews 11, they're like a great cloud of witnesses. But keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's read this, Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Hopefully you've all turned there. Uh, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's read it one more time, because what matters is the Bible, the Scriptures. Let's read it one more time. Therefore, therefore, This is drawing a conclusion off of the previous chapter. This is drawing an inference off of the previous chapter. Therefore, because of the previous chapter, because of all those heroes of the faith, we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance, those mud boots and, you know, extra weight. Lay them aside in the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Notice, by the way, we'll come back to this later, but how it says the joy that was set before him. Jesus was focused on the future. Jesus was focused on the joy set before him. Jesus was focused on uh, on God's future grace, enduring the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This passage says we have a great cloud of witnesses. A great cloud of witnesses. And as I already shared, today I'm beginning this sermon series on less known people of the Bible. Some of these people you may have hardly never heard of. Some of the people that I'm going to be preaching about over the next eight or ten weeks. Some of them you might know by name only. For example, who can tell me about Rehoboam? Just raise your hand. I'm not going to make you actually share. Just Who can tell me about Gehazi? Who, what about Uzziah? Maybe some of you heard of Uzziah. 
After this sermon series is over, you all have a quiz. No, after this sermon series is over, hopefully you will all know at least a little bit about these people of the Old Testament. They're, they're heroes of the faith in the Old Testament. You know, we're talking about some others that you might know more about, such as Samuel and Abigail in the Old Testament. These people set a great example for us. And this brings us to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 11, Hebrews 12 follows Hebrews 11, and Hebrews 11 mentions and talks about all these heroes of the faith, heroes of the Old Testament. In Hebrews 12, 1, the author talks about this great cloud of witnesses, this great cloud of witnesses. But then in verse 2, he tells us to keep our eyes on Jesus. This great cloud of witnesses, they are the people, the the heroes of Hebrews chapter 11. Listen, I want to emphasize this strongly. This great cloud of witnesses, they're not people in heaven looking down on us. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, when he talks about a great cloud of witnesses, they are not people in heaven looking down on us. Country music may talk about that, but that's not what Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 talks about. There was a country song in the 90s that talked about that. I try to make it a habit to stay as far away from country music as I can now. But anyways, that's not what it is. The great cloud of witnesses are the heroes of the faith. If you look in your Bibles, it says, if you're looking at this passage, it says chapter 12. It says chapter 12. This is chapter 12, verse 1. But in reality, as I've shared before, chapters and verses were not originally in the Bible. It's not that the author of Hebrews finished up what we would call chapter 11 and said, I'm going to make a chapter division right here. The chapters and verses were added. And I am really glad they were added because they make it much easier to get through the Bible. I mean, imagine if I stood up here and said, Turn in your Bibles three-quarters of the way through Hebrews and go to where it says, therefore, we're going to begin right there. That'd be kind of difficult because there's probably a number of therefores in Hebrews. And we all may have a different idea of when, it, when we are three-quarters of the way through Hebrews. So the chapters and verses were added, and I'm glad they were added. But as I believe I've shared before, chapters were added in the Middle Ages while a man on horseback rode to Paris. And I'm very thankful for these divisions, but sometimes they're at the wrong place. Hebrews chapter 12 immediately follows Hebrews chapter 11. They fit quite well together. And I believe we can make the case that each one of these people in Hebrews chapter 11, from the Old Testament, heroes of faith, each one of them would say, God is faithful, we can trust him. Each one of these Old Testament men mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 would say, God is faithful, we can trust him. They trusted the Lord, even in their faults and failures, and their hurts, habits, and hang-ups, and they would say, God is faithful, we can trust him. Abel would say that God is faithful, we can trust him. Enoch would say that God is faithful, we can trust him. Noah, who built the ark when people had never even seen rain, would say that God is faithful, we can trust him. By the way, I really wish when the mosquito came onto the ark, Noah would have swatted it, though. That would have been made our life a little bit easier if he just would have swatted the mosquito as well as the brown recluse spiders and that type of thing. That's another topic. But Noah would say that God is faithful. We can trust him. Abraham, father of our faith, would say that God is faithful. We can trust him. Moses would say that God is faithful. We can trust him. Rahab would say that God is faithful. We can trust him. 
So there's a woman mentioned in Hebrews 11 too. Gideon, Brock, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel would say that God is faithful, we can trust him. The prophets later on, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Jonah, and the rest would say that God is faithful, we can trust him. These are all the witnesses that went before us. The great cloud of witnesses. They were imperfect. They had flaws. But the pattern was that they trusted God in what God had called them to do. The pattern was that they trusted God in what God called them to do. And if you look through Hebrews 11, and you study the lives of each one of these men and women, and you study the lives of the others that we're going to talk about, they had major flaws. But they trusted the Lord. As you go through these people, you look at Isaac and Jacob and Esau and Abraham even and many of the others. Get to Samson and Judges. My gosh, major flaws. But we see that God is faithful. We can trust him. They had faith, just enough to trust the Lord, and God worked through them. And God will work through us as well. In context, the people that Hebrews was written to struggled with staying true to Christ. These were early believers. They were Jewish Christians, Jewish Christians who had gone through some persecution. And they're facing persecution. And the writer of Hebrews is encouraging them to stay true to the Lord. Because in their persecution, they're considering leaving Christianity. They're considering leaving Christianity. Or maybe they're considering leaving Christianity for a time. And after the persecution of the early 60s AD, after that persecution stops, maybe they'll come back to Christ. But the author of Hebrews is encouraging them. God is faithful. We can trust him. Stay true to Christ. And the author of Hebrews writes about all these people in Hebrews chapter 11. All these Old Testament heroes and their trust in the Lord and their faith in the Lord and how the Lord worked. And we come to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12. We have such a great cloud of witnesses. So eliminate all the things that entangle you. And in verse 2, focus on Jesus. He says to get rid of the distractions. And this is a second major purpose in this passage. Look at it. Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Get rid of that stuff. He says to throw off everything that hinders us. Remember how I talked about running with extra weight or running, a, running this major ultra marathon in mud boots? You get rid of things when you do a run, and you've got to get rid of this stuff in the Christian life as well. You know, no one runs with a bunch of weight. We lighten our load. And likewise, as Christians, we get rid of the weight keeping us from serving the Lord. Get rid of the weight keeping us from serving the Lord. This weight may be sin. Or maybe just other things that are keeping us from following the Lord fully. What is keeping us from following the Lord fully, completely, wholly? What is keeping us from following the Lord? Get rid of that stuff. Get rid of those things that entangle us and distract us. We could be dealing with two types of sins. One would be sins of commission. These are things that, that, uh, that God calls us that we should not do. Things that we should not be doing. Pride, envy, lust, lying, cheating, stealing, hate, jealousy, gossip, idolatry, adultery. These are all things that, that we should not be doing. These are sins of commission. And by the way, most of the time I believe these are things that we focus on. We focus on the sins of commission. Then there are sins of omission. These are things that you don't do that you should do. Maybe the Lord is convicting you to help out a neighbor in need, to pray for somebody, to share the gospel with somebody, and you don't do it. That would be a sin of omission. 
Uh, I have some listed, not loving God, not loving people, not spending time in prayer, not spending time in the Word, not spending time in, in spiritual disciplines. There are other things that weight us down. These could, these could be things that are, may not be sins, but they weight us down. Maybe not serving our church. This could be not studying, but just watching TV or playing video games or whatever it may be all the time. This could be some relationships that are bringing us down. Relationships can bring us down spiritually and many times do rather than building us up. The race of the Christian life is marked out for us. We must run with aim, looking towards the finish line. That's what verse 2 talks about. The Christian life is marked out in God's word. Verse 2 tells us to keep our eyes on Jesus. Keep our eyes on Jesus. All of those people in the hall of faith, these heroes of the faith, they all failed. They all messed up, but one person did not mess up, and that's Jesus. One person did not mess up, and that's Jesus. So we learn by certain examples of the heroes of faith, but we remember they all messed up, and if we focus on one person, and that is Jesus, he never messed up. We have our model. Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. Some translations say Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Jesus endured the cross in the shame of the cross, and then he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We must run the Christian life as with aim. We aim for Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus is the finisher of our faith. Jesus did it right. We must persevere and stay the course. We must get rid of the things that are holding us back and stay focused. <clears throat> God wants to use all of us, but we have weights in our Christian life. And we must release the weights and look to Jesus. Notice how this verse says about Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. The joy set before him. About that, author and pastor and writer John Piper writes the following. He writes, what faith performs is sometimes unspeakably hard. What faith performs is sometimes unspeakably hard. In his book, Miracle on the River Kwai, Ernest Gordon tells a true story of a group of POWs working on the Burma Railway during World War II. At the end of each day, the tools were collected from the work party. On one occasion, a Japanese guard shouted that his shovel was missing and demanded to know which man had taken it. He began to rant and rave, working himself up into a paranoid fury and ordered whoever was guilty to step forward. No one moved. Whoever's guilty stepped forward, but no one moved. All die! All die! He shrieked, cocking and aiming his rifle at the prisoners. At that moment, one man stepped forward, and the guard clubbed him to death with his rifle while he stood silently to attention. When they returned to the camp, the tools were counted again, and no shovel was missing. That man sacrificed himself for the others. Piper continues, What can sustain the will to die for others when you are innocent? Jesus was carried and sustained in his love for us by the joy that was set before him. The joy that was set before him. He banked on a glorious future blessing and joy. And that carried and sustained him in the love through his suffering. Woe to us 
if we think we should or can be motivated and strengthened for radical, costly obedience by some higher motive than the joy that is set before us. When Jesus called for costly obedience that would require sacrifice in this life, he said in Luke 14, 14, you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You hear that? Luke 14, 14. You will be blessed because they cannot repay you. Jesus continues, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. You will be repaid in the future at the resurrection of the just. In other words, be strengthened now in all your losses for Christ's sake because of the joy set before you. It's future grace. Peter said that when Jesus suffered without retaliating, he was leaving us an example to follow. And that includes Jesus' confidence in the joy set before him. He handed his cause over to God and did not try to settle accounts with retaliation. He banked his hope on the resurrection and all the joys of reunion with his Father and the redemption of his people. So should we. Where is our focus? Focus on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Focus on future grace, that grace that Christ is going to give us as we follow his will in the future. Remember the Old Testament heroes and their example. They gave us an example to live by. But remember, they all failed. And God still used them. And God will use us in our failures and our hurts, habits, and hang-ups. God will use us in our failures. And God will sustain us. And God will give us grace. And God will give us his love. But we focus on the one who never failed. And that is Jesus. And we focus on eternity. We focus on eternal life. By the way... For faith to really work, that requires trust. Sometimes we've never experienced how Jesus can really sustain us because we've never really trusted him. We've never really trusted him in our struggles, in our hurts. We've never really trusted him when he calls us to do something and we think, how in the world can I do that? As we think about the heroes of the Old Testament, they had to trust the Lord. I mean, Abraham was only 100 years old when Isaac was born. He had to trust the Lord. Are we trusting the Lord? Are we focusing on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith? And do you know Jesus as Lord and Savior? Have you trusted him as Lord and Savior? If you're not trusting in him, the first step in focusing on him is trusting in him as Lord and Savior. I'm going to pray here in a minute, but we're going to close the service here in a minute with the song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. And I just looked it up just, be, just a little bit ago, actually. The background to that song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And I want to read a little bit about that, and then I'll pray, and then Steve will come up and lead it. You know, actually, in my book on the background of hymns, it lists Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, for Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And it writes this about that hymn. In our fast-paced daily life, how easy it is to get caught up in the things of the earth. The things of the earth. So that eternal values become blurred and almost forgotten. As we conclude this first month, it was January in the book, journey through this new year. We need today's hymn to remind us that we must continue to make Christ the central core of our lives. To pursue the kingdom of God and his righteousness. If we are to be victorious believers. In 1918, Helen Howarth Limmel, the author and composer of this hymn, was given a tract by a missionary friend. 
As she read it, Helen's attention was focused on this line. So then, turn your eyes upon him. Look full into his face. And you will find that, 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 and you will find that the things of earth will acquire a strange new dimness. She related this. She wrote this. Suddenly, as if commanded to stop and listen, I stood still. And sinking in my soul and spirit was the chorus of the hymn, with not one conscious moment of putting word to word to make rhyme, or note to, mo- to, or note, to note to make melody. The verses were written the same week, after the usual manner of composition, but nonetheless dictated by the Holy Spirit. Since that day, Helen Lamel's hymn has been translated into many languages and used by God to challenge believers around the world with the necessity of living devoted lives for his glory. These are the words, or some of the words. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Through death into life everlasting, he passed and we follow him there. Over us, sin no more hath dominion, for more than conquerors we are. His word shall not fail you, he promised. Believe him and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying, his perfect salvation to tell. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray right now as Steve comes up to close the service with this hymn. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that we truly would turn our eyes to you. Lord God, I ask that we would focus on you, fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter, the author and finisher of our faith. Lord God, I thank you so much that we can learn from these heroes of faith in the Old Testament. We can learn so much by all these examples of characters and people, real people throughout the Bible in the Old and New Testament. And as we go through this sermon series, Lord God, I ask that you will teach us a lot. You will teach us a lot about following you, about stepping out in faith. But most of all, may you teach us that it's about following you. It's about fixing our eyes on you, Jesus. When they failed, you were still faithful. You were always faithful, Lord. Help us, trusting in you as Lord and as Savior, making you Lord of our life. And Lord God, if there's anyone here today who has never surrendered their life to you as Lord and Savior, may today be the day of salvation. May today be the day of confessing they are a sinner in need of a Savior, believing in you as only Savior trusting in you and committing to you. In Jesus' name, amen.